0: Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon.
1: Hello, everyone. Today, we're bringing back the CEO of the Global Autism Project, Molly Ola Pinney. She's joined by Dr. Michael Mueller. A board-certified behavior analyst, Mike is the co-founder of the IBAO, the International Behavior Analysis Organization. The IBAO certifies practitioners to ensure ethical practices, protect consumers, and maintain appropriate educational standards in the field of ABA around the world. Mike has authored 11 books, including Behavior Analytic Consultation to Schools, and the Assessment of Functional Living Skills, or AFLS, a seven volume series to guide in the assessment of teaching everyday life skills to learners of all ages. He has also published dozens of research articles and served on the editorial board of several prestigious journals, including the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, the School Psychology Review, and the Journal of Evidence Based Practices for Schools, to name a few. In this conversation, we discuss. What prompted the start of the IBAO? Former barriers to certification, including cost and accessibility. How the IBAO makes certification more attainable for practitioners who don't hold a master's degree. Ethical considerations to addressing cultural differences. The distinction between certification and licensure. Collaboration between Global Autism Project and the IBAO. And tips for ABA practitioners. In this episode, discover what's possible when certification is just the beginning. To learn more about Mike Mueller and the IBAO, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at autismpodcast Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you, Molly Pinney and Mike Mueller. Hello, Molly and Mike. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thanks
2: for being here today. Thank you so much for having us both here. I'm excited to hear from Mike today.
0: Yeah, thank you. Appreciate the opportunity.
2: Now, let's start with some brief introductions. Well, you want to go first? Sure. My name is Molly Ola Pinney. I am the founder and CEO of the Global Autism Project, and, yeah, I think that's who I am.
1: Yes. Well, some of our listeners might remember you from previous episodes. They might. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Mike
0: Hi, I'm Mike Mueller. I'm the uh, one of the co-founders and the current executive director of the International Behavior Analysis Organization. Been in ABA for about 25 years in different capacities. We have a clinical consultation company, we've published some peer-reviewed articles and books and assessments and now the focus is on creating appropriate and culturally relevant certification programs and growing ABA internationally.
1: All right. And before we get into talking about the amazing work you're doing, I'd like to just learn a little bit more about you. What got you into the field and what do you like about working with autistic individuals?
0: I got into the field, really kind of stumbled into it, probably a a better way. I was at West Virginia University as an undergrad, not knowing or appreciating that it was a kind of a powerhouse school for behavior analysis in general. I went there because I wanted to play hockey there and I thought the campus was cool. <laughs> uh, but through you know associating with graduate students and doing an honors thesis there, it became evident really that if I was really you know loving the field and if you were going to do anything interesting in it, you had to go on to graduate school, which I didn't know when I went to undergraduate. So my experiences at West Virginia were really more of an experimental nature. I was working in a, a rat lab and pigeon lab. And so, at the time, that's kind of what I thought I wanted to do until I had some ABA experiences, which were outside of the dark little lab room that got to work with children and saw that obviously a lot of the same you know behavioral principles applied for appropriate social behavior. And you could uh, work with you know cute little kids and have the same kind of feeling of accomplishment. So I changed my. Thoughts from wanting to be an experimental analysis of behavior person to an applied behavior analysis person and ended up going to graduate school for a master's and PhD in school psychology and graduated in 2001 with a PhD and then got my BCBA in 2002. So my graduate school started in 1997. This was kind of during the I guess the rise of autism prevalence and people becoming more familiar with it, at least in one sense, at least behavior analysis, a little bit, maybe paying attention to it more or it becoming kind of popular is not the right word that I want to use, but there's a more of an awareness. And anyway, my intersection joined that way. The University of Southern Mississippi opened its first autism assessment clinic and treatment clinic during the time that I was there. So I got to run that lab for a little while. It's a little bit weird kind of historically to look back because in 1997, 97, and 98, that was pre certification in behavior analysis,
2: mm-hmm.
0: which is a little bit weird to think about now. Right. I think especially if you look at the BACB's numbers, where I think it's 80%, 75% of the field has been only certified in the last five or six years. So it's probably odd for a lot of people to, you know, to really kind of understand. Pre-certification behavior analysis. Back then, you were a behavior analyst because you considered yourself a behavior analyst. There wasn't no an actual marker, and most of the people, especially the you know the prolific publishers and and Java and the other kind of respected you know behavior analyst journals, they, these were people with psychology degrees. It's actually a very new phenomenon that ABA is considered a unique and distinct field from psychology. Absolutely. And back then, and and actually, the reason why I went into a school psychology program was because, and it's still the case today, that if you're in counseling psychology, school psychology, or clinic psychology, you can get a license. And if you're in experimental or industrial organizational psychology or experimental or all the other psychology fields, you cannot be licensed.
2: Interesting.
0: Yeah, it was a way that people could kind of do applied behavior analysis and get paid for it through insurance companies. Mm -hmm. Now, at least with the pretty recent advent of uh, licensure laws, which are about half of the United States states, that is the actual recognition of this industry as a distinct field from what would have been psychology. So there are still some states where ABA kind of falls under psychology.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. And
0: it is um, again. I think it's recent history that it's it's distinct because in the early 2000s, even people were kind of put in the position that to defend the fact that it was a unique field from psychology boards, who said, "If we're not protecting the community from you, then who is?" And the answer was really nobody. So they were kind of grouped under that. But historically, I mean, the like ABA was a small part of behavioral psychology, which is a very small part. Of psychology in general, it's a little bit odd uh, to see that you know it's its own industry and its own field. I'm not opposed to, it, but it's just it's relatively new and it is a little bit um, you know if you look at most definitions for what psychology is, it's mind and behavior, and we're the behavior side of that. So it does feel a little different not to fit in there somewhere. But overall, I think it's a, a benefit. It is the highest form, you know, licensure is the highest form of community protection and government rec- regulation and recognition. So these are good things. It's just kind of historically speaking, kind of an odd
1: turn. hmm yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Okay. So fast forward to the creation of the IBAO. What kind of prompted this and how did it all get started?
0: I was doing training internationally, promoting my own kind of clinical interests, which are assessment and treatment of severe problem behaviors specifically in school settings on one hand and then on the assessment and, and you know skill acquisition of functional skills daily living skills so we we I'm one of the co-authors of the AFLS assessment of functional living skills and that has kind of opened up a lot of training opportunities both here and abroad and I was in the republic of Moldova in January of 2020, the Republic of Moldova is essentially a very small section, or what used to be a you know a region of Romania. And the Soviet Union came in, essentially kind of walled it off, did away with the bridges, changed the language, really kind of imposed their will on that little section, and then left. They didn't do anything to help build infrastructure. It has a lot of financial issues, lack of industry, et cetera. And so they don't have a lot of money there just in general. And I was invited over by this really wonderful person who has um, kind of taken it upon herself to raise awareness about autism, about developmental disabilities. Uh, her daughter was actually the first person in, in Moldova diagnosed with autism. And this was in 2006, just kind of to put that in historical perspective, that's a really long time for a country to have someone first diagnosed. Yeah. And it does kind of speak a little bit to the perceptions and attitudes there about autism and developmental disabilities. There's not a lot of awareness. There's not a lot of appropriate understanding and good information, reliable information. But this person had created an entire AVA service organization and got uh, both national loans and international loans from the UN to bring in people to do training and to train her staff. And none of none of her staff were certified, which I thought was odd because I'm in a room of 70 people and they're behavior analysts and behavior therapists. Not a single one of them has any certification.
2: It's like the late 90s.
0: Yeah, exactly. So they were, they, she was really honestly just kind of, you know, scraping things together and doing a, a tremendous job. I mean, these were not uninformed people because they didn't have certification, they just didn't have certifications. And, you know, I talked to some of them through translators and these were Clever, analytical, smart behavior analyst, just not certified. A couple of weeks, or I think it was actually a couple of months before this, they had secured funding from a a different UN loan, uh, not a loan, I'm sorry, a grant program that was going to allow them to send some people to the United States for education and certification. And right before I got there is when the BACB made their decision to not certify people outside of North America anymore. They were crushed. Their timeline with getting the funds and getting the people or, or, you know, over there and organized and through the school and everything else was not going to fit. So they went from like extremely ecstatic and enthusiastic about this opportunity because that was going to allow those people to serve as supervisors and it was going to create this whole uh, you kind know, of chain of momentum. They went from extremely pumped up about this to devastated. I mean, they it was palpable in the room, total disappointment. Like this little light that they had was kind of snuffed out. And they didn't know what they were going to do because there, like other places, the BACB was the goal. Once you had that, you had kind of formal recognition by the field. That was the target, that was the dream, basically. And now it was like, now what are we going to do? Yeah. And I, I don't know. For some reason, that really kind of hit me. I felt that came back from that trip and started talking to other people, people that I know internationally that that are doing translations that were at the time doing translations of the AFOLs or that I had done training with in other countries and started really kind of investigating if the same thing was happening everywhere. And it was, there was a, a real sense of disappointment and despair. And in some cases people worked really hard to, Make changes, local changes, or for instance, creating a, a university program based on people, you know, taking that program and then, you know, attending the program and then getting a BCBA. That was not possible anymore. So there were all these different ways that people felt really, really negatively impacted by this decision. And on top of that, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but there was also quite a bit of negative sentiment about the BACB for different reasons internationally. People had a, a really hard time obtaining the certifications. There's just a small percentage of those certified by the BACB that were outside of North America anyway. If you look at the numbers, it's a very small percent. And part of the reason is they were very difficult to obtain. So with all these things kind of you know going through our heads, we, we really wanted to be part of a solution going forward to try to do things in a different way to address the reasons why these were very difficult. Certification, whether people have positive or negative feelings about the BHTB, they did a fantastic job of really establishing the fact that you should be certified in this field to participate in it the right way. Mm-hmm. And nobody disagreed with that. It was just very difficult to obtain them for different reasons.
1: Can you elaborate, Mike, on why it was difficult to obtain What were some of those barriers that people were running into?
0: Yeah, um, it's interesting. I thought it really sounds surprising at the time. It's not me anymore. But when we first tried to do something about it and form the organization, the very first thing that we did, we formed an advisory board. At the time, it was 45 different people from 22 different countries, I think. And the very first meetings we had were really to try to figure that exact question out. Why are these so difficult to obtain? Everywhere had cost as an issue. So they're expensive and not just the, you know, the the cost of registration or the cost of the exams, but the cost of the education that was required, even if it's in a relevant field, you still have to have a master's degree.
2: Right.
0: And we can talk about why that maybe it doesn't make the most sense, but either way, that was a requirement. That's a very expensive process, even online master's degrees. You're still talking probably $12,000, $13,000, $15,000, some are more than that. That's insurmountable for some people. So it was a lot. So cost, language issues, both sort of in the field in general, but also related to you know the certification website, the certification materials, the documents and requirements. Like some exams were translated into some languages and some didn't have that. Where someone had to go to take the exam was a Pearson Test Center, and those don't exist even in all the countries. So it created a situation where people who were already kind of stressed out about the you know the big exam had to do sometimes international travel sometimes by themselves, which beyond the stress of that, the additional cost of you know a train ticket or an airline ticket, a hotel, additional meals to go sit in a room and be proctored was an additional cost. Educational, systems are different in some countries than they are for the U.S. The VACB has made a decision and I'm not saying it's the wrong decision, it worked for them, this, their decision that they made, but it did negatively impact people who are in places where the situation is different. So an example is in the U.S. when you get an undergrad degree, the first couple of years are all just non-major courses. It's arts and humanities and history and all these kind of things that make you a better educated, more well-rounded person. And then in your junior and senior year, you kind of focus on, on your major. Mine was psychology. So I didn't, outside of you know, basic psychology 101, I didn't have any psych classes until years three or four. Other places and other countries don't have that exact same setup. Some places have a two-year bachelor's degree because they don't require all of the other stuff. They don't require the arts and humanities and foreign language and all the things that make up the electives for your first two years. And some have three-year degrees because they have a part of that, but not two years worth. And those degrees wouldn't be accepted. Some have bachelor's and master's kind of rolled into one. And it's like a four-year master's program instead of what would be a five or six years master's program. Those weren't accepted. And even though there was a decision that you have to have a master's degree, and it didn't have to be in a related field, some degree fields from other countries were not accepted either. So when you talk about educational costs, master's degree requirement, educational system differences, costs, test centers, some places lack of available supervisors... The BACB has made decisions because they can make those decisions. Their field and their their market kind of allows it. If you look back really early on, probably 1998 to 2004 or five, your supervisor for your BACB didn't have to be a not have to have a BCBA. They had to be a behavior analyst, and you could prove your behavior analyst from all sorts of different ways. You could teach college courses. You could have you know job or JAB publications. It was more of a you know old school, if you consider yourself a behavior analyst, then you can you can supervise other behavior analysts. But at some point, you know they had to do that because there were no BCBAs when it first started. there weren't enough. You couldn't say at that time you have to have a BCBA to supervise because there weren't any. At some point, though, they determined that there were enough. And that worked here really, really well. But if you go to places where a country has one or two BCBAs, those people can't supervise everybody that's coming up in the field. So it just, there was just a lot of things kind of working against people in some places to obtain the certifications, even when they were available. Mm -hmm. So those are the big ones. And like I said, it surprised me at the time it doesn't anymore, but some of the reasons were different, but those same barriers and obstacles were the barriers and obstacles almost everywhere that we talked to.
1: Right. Molly, can you, um, speak to,
2: I'm like, this sounds very familiar. (laughs) Yeah.
1: You know, with your over 20 years now experience working internationally and all the conversations you've had with our partners, what have you learned about some of these challenges for them and what their needs are?
2: You know, it's interesting because as an organization, We wanted to work as closely as possible with the BACB to have them see the limitations. This was all alongside, you know, again, just to kind of contextualize this, right? This was all alongside what was happening in the U.S. with insurance, with more restrictions, with, you know, more credentials, the RBT credential came out. And so I really understood kind of that conflict between, okay, health insurance is now involved. Now they want more credentials, more restrictions. I want us to kind of tighten it up we can't necessarily as the BACB just loosen it up all over the world to meet these criteria, right? Because as Mike spoke great about, there's just a lot of, there were a lot of things, right? You know, could they have potentially done things differently in other parts of the world? Yes. And it wasn't a priority and it wasn't aligned with kind of the direction the organization was going in. So for us at the global autism project, we really said, okay, so We're going to try to work within the BACB guidelines as they stand. We were only able to, within those guidelines, get a university program into the Dominican Republic. And it took about seven years between just all the red tape and the bureaucracy and between, you know, the government of the Dominican Republic who had to sign off on the courses, who'd never heard of ABA, who, you know, and then the BACB had to approve every, and it just, it took so long that we said, okay, I'm not sure what we're going to be doing with credentialing kind of moving forward. That's a down the road issue for us. And we would speak back to Mike, to your point in the nineties, there were no credentials and we were doing this work. So we really just had to work outside of credentialing altogether. Now, in a lot of places that was okay. And in a lot of places that was not okay. Because what the heck is the difference between somebody who says they're doing ABA and somebody who says they're doing ABA and has been trained by BCBA? Nothing, especially to the parents, especially to the kids, right? And so I remember, you know, we just have, I do sometimes need to create a book and put all these stories in it. But I do remember that in a country that we worked in, they said they do ABA at that address. And so we learned a little bit more about what that address was and what that ABA was. And it was somebody who was literally in a jail cell giving pills to parents to cure autism and calling it ABA. So again, I've been at this for 20 years. You know, we used to be kind of the only people even talking about ABA as parents understood that what they wanted was ABA, that what their kids had was autism, you know, as that shifted. And it shifted really in some ways quite slowly. It's sort of like how we think people are an overnight success, right? It shifted kind of slowly. And then all of a sudden it was like, there was kind of this demand for ABA all over the world. And when you asked families what they meant by ABA, that's where there was sort of this breakdown. They just knew that it was a way to help their kids, but they didn't actually know what they were looking for. And so, you know, it was the night before my 40th birthday or something that the VACB made that announcement. I remember, you know, like the phone calls were coming in and the emails and the texts. And I was like, it was like New Year's Eve or something. And I, my birthday is January 2nd. I'll just write it down, everybody. Um, and so, and I was kind of like, you know what? I need to stick a pin in this. This is not going to steal my New Year's Eve. This is not going to steal my birthday. And I just made a post that was like, listen, we're going to all come up for air in a few days from our holiday breaks. And we can kind of think about it. And, you know, I sort of gave myself that breathing room, that moment to think on it and have a birthday. And I remember thinking, it's so funny to think now, right? Like, wow, things are really going to change for this organization in 2020 the BACB is not working internationally. And Rachel, you probably remember that staff meeting where we were like, oh my goodness, like this is a shift and what are we going to do? Yeah. But just having that breathing room and going, you know, I sort of have this thing where I go like, okay, like one, what's mine to manage, not the BACB and where they are credentialing or not. And two, what is here for me to learn? And so I started to kind of look back and I thought, you know, we're all kind of seeing this as like, this is this terrible thing. And how are we going to help these people? And I've had a number of experiences in my life and now post pandemic, even more where you've just kind of cleared the decks and it's made room for something new and better. It's created space and openness for possibility. And so I didn't know what it was going to look like, but I started to really go, you know, it's actually been really complicated to work with an organization whose focus and priority is stateside, internationally. It's been really complicated. You know, it's actually if I think about what else is available, and I had zero desire to begin my own credentialing organization. So I was really thrilled. When IBAO said, hey, this is something that we might do, you know, and everybody kind of, and a lot of people would say, you know, like, Molly, what do you think about this? And I was like, you know, I kind of know the people who are involved and I think it could be great and it has to be done. And the recommendation I'm going to make to them is the same recommendation I've made to the BACB for many years. And that is to do with not for the global community. And so as Michael said, they had 40 something people from 22 countries. Some of our partners are part of this. And that was really kind of my only advice. I was like, listen, like ask people from around the world. And I've watched IBAO do that and take that into consideration. And then Mike, you and I connected directly again, kind of took a little nap during the pandemic, I guess, and connected again. And I was just so thrilled to hear that you were still focused on, like, we only want to do this if it makes sense. That always resonates with me a lot. Like, let's not just like do it to do it ourselves, you know, but only wanting to do it if it makes sense, only wanting to do it in a way that was aligned with the needs of the global community. And it's continued to be that. And I've talked with so many people who are part of it now, and it's really great, little things, like you could have like a master's degree in aquatics. I don't even know. And it was like, okay, check the box, master's degree. And it was like, how on earth does that make sense? And that is so incredibly prohibitive for our community that we work with. So, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, well, thank you. There's um, all of the decisions have been made for particular reasons. And we are at the beginning, Of a growth cycle, if you will. Whether things will change around the world that will allow us to make certain changes to requirements remains to be seen. But we're operating in the best way that we can to address the issues that were at the forefront of this to help the biggest number of people in the the widest number of places. One of the things that you mentioned is a little bit the absurdity of requiring a master's level education in something that is different from what you're actually being certified in right like a little analogy i like to use is if you have a problem with your car and you go to a certified auto mechanic for whatever brand of car that you have does it matter that that person has a master's degree in history or in finance or in agriculture or aquatics or anything else the answer is no You want them to be a certified specialist in that particular field. And their level of education and anything else is really irrelevant to why you would be seeking them out. Certifications in ABA, these are practitioner level certifications. This is to help the community, the consumers recognize who has, what the field, what our industry has described as the appropriate education, training experiences and knowledge. To go beyond that doesn't make any sense, and it's extremely prohibitive, especially outside the United States, to put that kind of unnecessary burden on people that have all these things working against them to actually obtain those and achieve that. So, yeah, the decisions that we've made uh, have been made with those in mind and they're much more accessible because of it. I think it's I don't know if common sense is the right word, but we've thought through the decisions and you know kept in place what is extremely important to be certified in this particular field. We've done away with the things that, that haven't. And in our own clinical company, I have a consultation company in Georgia and we had a a master's level BCBA who was a tennis pro. She played college tennis and got a master's degree in physical education, got injured, got into the field the same way a lot of people do, knew a, a relative with autism and learned about ABA and, took the verified course sequence. So she was, you know, a quote unquote master's level behavior analyst, BCBA. And her master's degree was in physical education. She was bright, smart, great with kids, good rapport building, no problem leading meetings or going into families' homes. She was an awesome behavior analyst, but the only education that she had was in the course sequence. The master's degree, although she had it and it made her, you know, a candidate for the BCBA had absolutely nothing to do with anything educationally or application wise for behavior analysis. And when you kind of start breaking it down like that, you do better appreciate or start to question, maybe it's a better way to put it, why that requirement exists. But even in the times where your master's degree has to be from a kind of quote unquote related field, which is education and psychology, I don't know of any education or general psychology master's programs that you learn anything about ABA. You might learn what it is, but in psychology, it's typically not looked at very favorably. It's like this little simplistic technology stimulus response. You know,
2: mm-hmm.
0: of course, you give someone things that they like after they do them, they might do them a little bit more, but that's how it's looked at in general psychology. It's always been this little simplistic little niche area of behavioral psychology. So if you get a a clinical master's degree in psychology, you are not getting any more ABA education than you would if you were in a history program. Same thing with general education and, and even a lot of special education. There might be a little bit more, you know, general classroom management stuff, but you're not learning any more about motivating operations. Right. In a master's class than you would in your VCS.
1: Yeah, I was a psych major in my undergrad
2: Yep.
1: <laughs> too. And I, I mm-hmm. think there was like one slide on that chart of positive and negative reinforcement and punishment so yeah mike could you just talk about also the differences and other requirements like testing and how that's more accessible now for international folks
0: sure again the you know the problem was having to sit in a particular room with someone physically standing over your shoulder to test it's an odd requirement a little bit because whatever the stats are 60 70% of people who are BCVAs now, get their education from online master's programs. And these programs, which have been around for a long time, or at least there have been a couple around for a long time. Most of them are, are relatively new. But anyway, they all use online testing applications. And in 2023, there are very robust exam, safe, secure, proctor exam software that you can use. And you can do this from anywhere with a secure internet connection. So. To think that you have to go to a specific physical location, to me now, seems as odd as it did when I took the exam in 2002, where I had to fly to Knoxville, Tennessee and sit in a room with 50 other people and do it in pencil and paper. It's an antiquated way of having to go about doing it, and it's, it's prohibitive. So ours is an online exam. It's an online proctoring solution. Safe and secure. It's got all the safety and security and tech requirements that, that go into making it such, but anybody can take it anywhere at any time, which is nice. So there's no travel involved, there's no additional costs involved,
2: mm-hmm.
0: none of that. And it really makes sense given the community of people who are trying to support. So,
1: yeah, absolutely. Okay. And with regards to the IBAO's ethical guidelines, how do you address? some of these differences that we might find across cultures?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. That was, um, I was part of the ethics committee that created those exams and it was a great bunch of people. And the first thing that we did was we just downloaded and read and consumed and thought about ethical codes, ethical guidelines, ethical documents from our field, from different locations, from other fields, I with OT, speech, dental hygiene. We just tried to get a, as broad a view as possible. Read more kind of theoretical articles about, you know, ethics and the application and things like that. And one thing that we all kind of came away with, both from consuming this literature and our own personal experiences, was that ethics are contextual. They are informed by the situation you're in at the time. And it's very difficult to apply a very black and white code, a list of things that you can never do, to varying and culturally different situations. So the ethics were informed by the idea that people have to make their own determinations about what, what the best solution is, what the best behavior is, what the best response is in any particular situation. And that differs. What might be wrong for one person might be the ideal solution for somebody else in in their situation. So it's very contextual. It is informed that way. So we have ethical guidelines. These are essentially aspirational goals that people should attempt to, you know, strive to in their professional world. It is not a black and white code and, you know, something that is commonly discussed and it's interesting, that's kind of like a, a thought game or whatever, but, you know, the idea of gifts has been overwhelming, uh, <laughs> a very popular topic of conversation or guideline or rule that gets discussed. I've been in many places, different places in the Middle East. When you go into someone's home, my experience at least, uh, been to uh, help families of uh, four or five different nationalities. Every single one of them have taken it upon themselves, either them personally or the staff that they may have in their home. To prepare, if it's in the morning, juices, pressed juices, and pastries. At lunch, they bring out different things. Fish. They're excited to share their community with you. They're excited to share their culture with you. You have to try this kind of food, and they'll bring it out, and they're presenting it. To say no to those kind of things, because we're not allowed in some way, would be incredibly disrespectful. It would be very insensitive and it would really, I think, damage rapport because it would be very hard for some people to understand why you wouldn't accept their gratitude and graciousness in their home. You're in their home and they're making you feel welcome. And that's all it is. Mm-hmm. They're not trying to influence your decision making, which is another kind of weird thing, not to get off on the tangent, but behavior analysts should be interested in what parents want. Mm-hmm. Right? We should be taking their values and wishes into consideration when we're doing things. So it seems weird to say, well, you know we don't want their decisions or whatever to influence what we know is better because that's really not the way we should be operating in the first place. but that's for a different podcast. <laughs>
2: uh,
0: so anyway, we have ethical goals and guidelines when someone recognizes that there there may be things in conflict because it's possible, we also use this Rosenberg and Schwartz article from two thousand and eighteen. That describes an ethical problem-solving model. We modified that slightly for our own use. We give them all the credit, of course, but we have modified it slightly so that when someone is in a situation and they feel like they might be conflicted about different things to do, it kind of walks them through a process to help solve that. So recognize, you know, which two things may be in conflict. Kind of brainstorm possible solutions. Consult with others. Determine in your own situation what's the best outcome for the client or the field. And then for you personally, that should be the order of of operations, put something in place, evaluate it and, you know, learn from it. You can't say always or never in this field. So Mm -hmm. it's been interesting. It's decidedly flexible in that way for those reasons. And, um, you know, people are concerned sometimes that, you know, how is IBAO going to essentially be a worldwide ethical police force. And that's not the role of certification bodies. We have limited access to some things, but we are not a global ethical police force. There has to be understanding. There has to be education. There has to be educating the people who may have done things differently or made bad decisions to give them a chance to to make better decisions in the future. But that's the role of licensing Boards. And that's why that's kind of the highest form of community protection, because licensing boards are literally gatekeepers to decide who can work in this field and who can't. Certification bodies don't do that. Hmm. They say you have these standards, you're, you're promising to do these kind of ethical and professional behaviors. You're going you're to stay up to date with CEUs and these kind of things. But the most severe consequence an organization like ours could could do is take someone or not allow them to renew their certification.
1: Hmm. That's an interesting distinction. Yeah.
0: And a lot of people aren't aware the distinction between, you know, licensure and certification and here, especially in the U S that, that line is even blurred further because if you're in a state that you can get licensed, the prerequisite for licensure is certification. You can't be a licensed behavior analyst and not have a BCBA in the U S the distinction is slightly, slightly blurred, but in other places, the, you know, the benefit of certification is to see who's inside the bubble and who's outside. So situations like Molly talked about earlier, where anybody, because there is a licensure, (laughs) can do whatever they want and call it ABA. The field needs to establish, well, these people that are providing ABA services are doing it correctly. These other people are not, and we don't know what they're doing. Right. So that's the, the main benefit of certification is allowing people to see who has the education training experience to do it the right way and who is jumping on a bandwagon now that this approach is becoming more popular in more places.
2: Mm -hmm. I think to that point, Mike, it's something we talk a lot about, Rachel, too. There's a lot of advances. There's a lot of changes. There's a lot of best practices in ABA all the time, right? And so if we can't figure out, as Mike said, kind of who's inside the bubble and who's outside the bubble, then how do we know, how do parents know, who they can trust. I mean, listen, we see it all over the world with the name of something just being kind of used as if that's what it is, different certifications, things like that. And yeah, I mean, ABA was no different and it was happening. We used to talk about this all the time. The, the reason we partnered with places in the way that we partnered with them is because what we would see in a lot of countries, is Somebody would go to a four-hour workshop, they would have a certificate, they would hang it on the wall and they would tell their local community, I am trained in ABA, I am trained in AFLs, I am trained in whatever it is. And that was kind of, what's the difference, you know? And so that becomes a really important piece. So I think ultimately it's really about protection for the families. It's really about safety for the kids. And listen, we have a lot of conversation here, and I'm so grateful for it, just sort of about ABA and the harm and all of these things. I just want to make it very clear. When we're talking about the global community and we're talking about the harm that's being caused by these children, it's very severe. It's very intense. We're talking about bleach enemas being called ABA in some parts of the country. We're talking about pills from a jail cell being called ABA in some parts of the country. So things that can cause harm to the point of death is what is going on around the world. We don't talk about that a whole lot because we really like to you know, talk more about all the great work that's happening, but that's the reality of what's happening. People are calling it ABA and they're doing things that are straight up dangerous, if not life-threatening to children.
0: Yeah. We hear that all the time. And that's that's the benefit is yeah, giving something recognizable to people to see who has the right background and who doesn't. Yeah. And honestly, I, I wouldn't say equally as important, but another important feature is recognizing those people who have taken the right approach, who have dedicated their lives, who have done the educational part, the experience part, the supervision, you know, promise to practice ethically and do the things now and going forward to be good practitioners. This is a recognition for them.
1: Right. Great. I mean, I think you guys are definitely doing great work, stepping up into this space, this opportunity now that's available. Molly, could you just speak briefly on the collaboration between Global Autism Project and the IBAO?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think probably over the course of this episode, you've heard all kinds of overlap. And, you know, one of the most exciting things that we're up to this year is really supporting the organizations that we work with, not just in a clinical capacity, but on the business capacity as well. And, you know, Mike's talking about all these people doing all this great work the one mom of the one kid who was the first diagnosed in Moldova, etc. Right. And so we're really working as an organization to be able to create the needs outside of just the clinical capacity. And I did tell Mike, I said, you know, I want to focus this episode on the good work that IBAO is doing, but part of the good work that they're doing is we're working closely with each other and they've supported a scholarship fund for more people around the world to have access to the training that the Global Autism Project is providing. So it's really exciting. We'll have details. You'll see them coming out. We'll put them in the show notes on more details on our website over the next few weeks. But you know, I think it's probably very obvious to you how crucial the work that IBAO is doing to our work, to our success and ultimately to these kids well-being. So that's a Great. Qu- quick summary. Great. Okay.
1: Well, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to other practitioners out there?
0: Well, there's a lot of opportunity to do good. There's a lot, lot of opportunity to take shortcuts and do things the wrong way. The idea, the requirement, not a legal requirement, but the kind of the community requirement to get certified to do things the right way does not exist everywhere. So my advice would be, even though it's challenging, and even though when you're at the beginning of the process, and the beginning of your journey, it does seem overwhelming when you're talking about, you know, five or six college level classes and supervision and supervisors and a new work environment, and all these different things. Just know it was it looked that way to everybody. Right. And and take the first step, meet the requirements, go down the right road, do it the right way, get certified, and then continue to learn. Even though it feels like it when you're starting, the certification is not the finish line. The certification is the field our industry is saying now you're qualified to begin. So keep that milestone as an important one, and then know once you're past it, the learning never stops. Be a consumer of research, be a consumer of the publications of our field, get quality CEUs, go to events, network, build up the infrastructure and the ABA community around you, lift people up behind you so that they have an easier chance to, to come up as you did. So that, that would be my advice. Keep on going.
2: Great. Molly, anything to add? Sure, always. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think the advice to practitioners is the same thing that I've said for a very long time, and that really is to do with, not for, whether that's the family, whether that's the people of the community, whether that's the client themselves, do with, not for. I think that is my biggest, always advice. If I could just give one little bit of advice for the rest of my life, and I probably sound a bit like a broken record if you've heard other episodes, but it really is. You know, I think when we think about IBAO and the success that IBAOs had, it all comes down to them doing with and not for. And the same is true of the organization, of the podcast, of everything that that we've done. So,
1: yeah. All right. Well, thank you both. Thank you, Mike, for sharing. I'm going to put the link to the IBAO on our show notes, in our show notes, so that people who are interested in the certification can go do their research and see what the requirements are. Perfect. Great. All All right. right. Thank you both. So good to see you guys. Thanks a lot for
0: the opportunity.
1: Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Global Autism Project's Responsive Skills Training Curriculum, or RST, teaches the required skills for the IBAO's International Behavior Therapist Credential. Co-created with the autistic community, this course provides an exploration of lived experiences to transform the way in which services are provided across the world. If you'd like to learn more about RST, please listen to episode 139 with co-creator Ann Byrne and our CEO, Molly Pinney, and episode 146 with RST contributor, Andrew Bennett. Sign up for RST today at globalautismproject.org forward slash RST. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community.
0: You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.